John chapter 21, verses 9 through 19. So the manner in which I chose to break up this section of Scripture is not normal. Normally, you would preach from verses 1 through 14, and then 15 through 25, since these are the natural transition points within this section of Scripture. However, the fact that within modern evangelicalism, and by modern, I mean within the last 200 years or less, so many things within this chapter have either been deemed non-original, such as the entire chapter, or they have been taught with such bad theology that the intended meaning of this chapter and the events have been lost. And for this reason, I've chosen to break away from that culturally norm, norm. I have broken the natural flow of this account up in the hope that we will all get thrown off just a bit. That the comfortable flow that we have so often found ourselves in concerning the scriptures and the meaning of them might be challenged. That we would actually be startled into having to examine what the text says for what it actually says and not for what we think that it says or what it means. Because the truth is, the entirety of chapter 21 was and is part of the original text. And in it, God through John wraps up this gospel by retelling the disciples and through them, us, what it means to be his disciple. What it means to be a fisher of men. And how these things are even able to be done. And in our section of scripture today, we're going to find out what true love is. We're going to find out the reality of the love of God for each one of us. Verse 9. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, and fish laid out on it, and bread. So Peter and the boys had been fishing all night long, and they caught nothing. And as the sun was rising, they spotted on the shore a lone man by a fire. And then this man called out to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Well, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And it was then that John recognized that this was Jesus. And Peter jumped overboard to get to where he was. And this is where our account picks up today. And from the very get-go, we are faced with our personal assumptions. You see, we assume that Peter got to the shore before the boys in the boat did. We assume that he did, but we're never even told that he did. We're even given the impression from the account itself. All we're told from this is that, the, um, starting in verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. That's all we're told. We assume that Peter got to the shore first. We assume what his intentions were, that he was actually thinking that he could get, that he could get to Jesus before the rest of the boys did. We assume this. But we could actually just as easily assume other things from this verse as well. We could just as easily assume from this verse that Peter was so distraught because he denied the Lord three times and has now abandoned his post and gone back to his old life and that after seeing Jesus on the shore, he became so distraught that he threw himself into the water in the hopes of drowning that he 
like Judas, who had succeeded in taking his own life because of his betrayal of Jesus, that he was trying to do the same thing. We can assume this. It actually makes sense when you take the rest of this account and make it into Jesus expecting Peter to love him as he should and then accepting whatever he could get out of Peter. And we could just easily assume that Peter had no intention of getting wet at all. That's why he put his clothes back on. He thought he was going to be able to walk on water once again because it was on this very lake that he had done that before. They were in a boat that time as well, and Jesus wasn't just like now. We need to stop assuming the word of God and start allowing it to tell us exactly what he desires us to understand from it. Because this entire chapter is very heavily laden with details. And for this reason, this chapter and the accounts within it can be very easily disconnected and mean to mean things that they were never intended to mean. Those details can become fish stories at the hands of people that are desiring to find some new and hidden meaning within them. Or people trying to get the gospel to fit into their narrative. And because these details can be easily taken to be more of more importance than they are or what they were meant to be, those that are important can get lost on us. Take, for instance, the fact that we're told that there was a charcoal fire on that shore. There's only one other time within this gospel that we are told of a charcoal fire, and that's found in chapter 18, verse 18, which tells us, now the slaves and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. This detail has given us to cause us to think of that other charcoal fire that we are told about in this gospel. The night that Jesus told Peter that he would betray him before the rooster crowed three times. That conversation is told to us in verses 36 through 38 of chapter 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And even in those verses, in that conversation, there is a certainty on the part of Jesus that is lost on Peter and us as well. And part of the events of this day are built upon the events of that night, but not for the reason that we've been taught. On that night, Peter stood alone, warming himself by the fire of the enemies of God. But this morning, Peter was not alone with Jesus at that charcoal fire. He was there with the other six men that were called disciples in verse 1 of this chapter. A list um, where not all the men are named. Peter's named. Thomas is named. If you look at verse 1, the sons of Zebedee are named. And then we're told that there were two others as well. And included in that list was this man, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. This man is never listed as an apostle, one of the twelve. And this isn't the first time that we've ever heard of him either. 
there's one other time, only one other time that we ever hear of him. That's found in this gospel as well, at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And the events that are found in that account are worth noting. All the way back in chapter 1, verses 43 through 51, we're told there, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under that fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And the crux of that conversation and the inclusion of this man here, now, it's important in understanding the meaning behind this strange morning and all these strange events. The church was gathered. And this man had been given eyes to see the Son of Man as God. He was the same as the apostles in the love with which he was loved. And then this strange event gets even stranger. Verses 10 through 11. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And all there were, there were so many, the net was not torn. Okay, let us stop right here and analyze the facts. These men were fishing all night and hadn't caught a minnow. Then they saw Jesus, and he told them, cast your net on the right side of the boat, and voila, there were fish. And when we're told back in verse 6 of that catch, we're not told how many were in that, in that net. It just was so many that they... Um, couldn't haul it in. So they must have dragged it alongside of the boat until they got back to the land. But at the command of Jesus, Peter single-handedly does what those six men couldn't do together. He hauled that net full of fish ashore. And then we're told exactly how many fish there were in that net, 153. Why the specificity of the number of fish? And why is it that the thing that so many biblical scholars have spilled so much ink over within this verse is those numbers? They completely ignore the fact that Peter hauls that net all by himself ashore and focuses on the number given concerning the fish. Why the focus on the number but not the actions of Peter? I mean, do you even realize that this is a thing that there are actually five different schools of thought 
built around this one verse, around those numbers. The fact that the Lord decided to tell us with specificity the number of fish that were in that net. The first is simply to deny that there is any meaning behind the number. It's just a fact. It's just something that stuck out to John, and this is why it's included here. But this can't be the answer, since the Lord is the one that's directing John to write this gospel. And this second school of thought is that the number 153, that corresponds with the exact number of types of fish there are in all the world. And this is a correlation given us to show the full inclusion of all people into the catching of the Lord. Unfortunately, it's been proven that there are more than 153 types of people. I'm sorry, fish and people. The third states that the number 153 is given to cause us to think of the 153,300 workers employed to build Solomon's temple, as told to us in 1 Kings 5, 15, and 16. I know that's where my, my mind went automatically. Or perhaps the 153 days of the Genesis flood. The fourth school concerns the mathematical number itself. Now, the theologian Origen postulated that if you take 153 and you separate it mathematically, you come up with 50 times 3 plus 3. And 3 is the number of the Trinity, and that's why it's this way. And, but not to be outdone, Augustine determined that 153 is the sum of all the natural numbers between 1 and 17. And because of that, he determined that that... Um, was representative of the law being 10, and you take the 7 out of the 17, and the 7 represents the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the 5th is the most technical of all of them. It postulates that the answer to the conundrum of the number 153 can be found in the giving of the numerical numbers to the original Greek letters. And by doing that, we can use that as the key to determine other truths within the gospel. So which of these five things or, or thoughts are correct, or are any of them? We're going to address that in a minute. But first we need to address the oddity that is verse 12. Jesus said to them in verse 12, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. That's a strange verse. It's a strange statement. And that net full of fish, it's never mentioned ever again. Nor is the fact that Peter somehow did the seemingly impossible in dragging it to the shore. All that is forgotten. And all of that is thrust aside because Jesus speaks. And what he speaks is an invitation to come and dine with him. An invitation that matches perfectly with the first invitation given them in chapter 1, verse 39. When after asking the, the first disciples what it was that they were seeking, they responded by asking him, where are you staying? And it's then that he bids them to come. When he tells them, come and you will see. Which is the very same invitation that Philip gave to Nathaniel when he was told of this Messiah and was skeptical. And verse 12 is not just the retelling of events. Because within, found within verse 12 is also a commentary given. Given into the minds of these men, and even into John's own mind. 
He says they knew that it was Jesus. And at the same time, they had questions that they desired to ask him. Details that they thought were important to know. And the man that was told that the resurrection of Jesus, that one that was unwilling to believe the testimony of the church, Thomas, he's in this group. But he's not being singled out here as the only one that desired to ask questions of Jesus. He was in this group at this fire. And he, like John, still had questions that they desired to ask of Jesus, but they dare not ask him. Saints, I have to ask you, do you think it odd that you still have questions? That in the midst of your belief, you doubt? And do you think that this is because you are an anomaly? That you are different than every other believer? Do you fret because you cannot fully comprehend the God that became human, who lived, died, and lives now, who's making intercession for you on your behalf because of his shed blood 2,000 years ago? Do you think you're alone in this? Saints, we have to get used to the fact that we really cannot understand God, that we cannot completely, fully understand him simply because he's holy 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 and we're not he's completely other and we are created beings redeemed created beings yes but even though we have him living inside of us even though he has redeemed us and given us his life we are still not him And we will never be him. And we will never fully get him. Which is why we will spend an eternity getting to know the depths of the love that is him. But why did the disciples dare not ask him? Simply because the questions that they thought were important to have answered weren't. You have questions, and you keep coming like, where, where, how can this be? And you're wondering, why can I not get an answer for it? Because it's not important. Everything that the Lord deemed it right and necessary for us to know about him is told to us in his word. And that's enough. Just understand that for the rest of eternity, we are going to be in the presence of this King, of this Savior, that we will then be able to mine the depths of who He is. But that's for then and not now. And all the disciples' questions would be answered by verse 13. Jesus came and took the bread. And he gave it to them, and so with the fish. Because the ministry of Jesus began with a celebratory feast, as told to us in chapter 2 of this gospel. The wedding feast in which he first provided the best wine made ever. And here at the end of the gospel, he once again provides a feast. And both of these feasts, the bookend, the gospel of John, are given to highlight the reality and truth of the real feast 
that is Jesus. In chapter 6 of this gospel, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And then the following day, they, um, they follow him and the disciples across the lake, perhaps to this very shore where these men now stood. And there Jesus began teaching them about the difference between bread and bread and life and life. And it was then that he proclaimed, For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. And whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Verses 55 through 58. And we aren't told that Jesus ate this meal with them as he did the meal at the Last Supper. That meal had been prepared for him and them. That meal was the last shared meal, the last communion that he would take with his church until the kingdom of God was fulfilled as told to us in Luke twenty-two sixteen. But this meal was provided for them. It was his meal. It was from him, not for him. And it was given to explain the fishing trip and all the events surrounding it, as told to us by the commentary of John in verse 14. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And in this commentary is found the meaning of the 13 verses that have been given to us previously. It was never about the disciples going fishing, abandoning their calling, it wasn't about them at all. It's not about the fish, the number or amount of them, the strength, the strength or compulsion of Peter. This entire section is about Jesus. And this entire section is given to highlight the love of Jesus, the love for his church and for his brothers. It's all about the ministry of Jesus, about the commission that he has given these men, that great and glorious office that they have been given to them by the Father through the Spirit who now lived not only alongside of them, but who is now in them. It was all about the ministry of reconciliation that they had witnessed firsthand in the life of Jesus, the one that they had been witnesses to, and even the same one that they have been given Jesus had told them during that last meal, the night that he had clearly laid out the price that would cost him to redeem them, the night that he told them of the great love that he has for his church, he told them, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, this will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. And this is the love of God for those that he has sent his beloved son to redeem. And we get confused about this love. Because we think of it as only what it means to us. The towards us love of God. God so loved me that he gave his only begotten son. So that, I, so that I can believe and not perish, but have eternal life and my best life now. 
And even if we don't tack on that heretical, that heretical, uh, heretical end to that about having our best life now, we very often view our salvation just this way. God so loved me so that I don't have to go to hell. We view our salvation about only being about us, what God did for me, what he did to me. But that's not the full and encompassing love of God for us, for these men. He loves us so much. He loves you so much that he gave you the same ministry that he was given. The ministry of reconciliation. And as this son has prepared these men for this ministry, by sending them out earlier to proclaim the king and his kingdom, as told to us in chapter 10 of this gospel of Matthew, of the gospel of Matthew, you might want to turn there because we're going to spend some time there. Matthew chapter 10. Beginning in verse 5, he told them, go nowhere, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals for your, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. And truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Chapter 10, verses 5 through 15. Can you imagine being given that kind of power? You think about it. Did you hear what he told them to go and do? Cleanse lepers, heal the sick, raise the dead. This is heady stuff. This is ego building, pride pumping, look at me kind of stuff. And Jesus knew this to be true, which is one of the reasons that he sent out not just the 12, but also another time he sent out 72, as told to us in Luke chapter 10. He gave them the same authority, the same message, and the same instructions as he did the 12. And when the 72 came back, they were all excited about what had taken place at their hands, just like the 12 were. And for this reason, he gave them a wake-up call concerning this. In verses 19 and 20 of, of Matthew 10, he said, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over um, all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Yes, more power. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is all heavy, heady stuff. 
These men were given, being given a power that they could never obtain on their own. They were being given the authority of the king of kings. And on that day when the twelve returned from wielding this power, they came back very proud and self-important. But with this power, there came a price as well. We are all rightfully enthralled to be told that we are the loved of God with an everlasting love, as told to us in Zephaniah 3.17. That we are sons of God, as told to us in Galatians 3.26. That he has made us this, Galatians 4.7. We are thrilled to have our names written in the Lamb's book of life. And so were the disciples. But this love, this relationship, this sonship comes with expectations. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 33. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. These men would do the same works as Jesus. And because they were of him, they would be treated the same as him. And this is not pride-building, ego-boosting kind of stuff. This is really scary kind of stuff to be told. But Jesus didn't flinch from telling them the truth. And once again reminded them of how it was that they could stand telling them that they would stand on that day. Matthew 10, verses 19 through 27. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious of how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speaks, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. This is the reality of what we're seeing happening in Afghanistan right now. They don't hate those people because of any other reason that they are Christ. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute in persecute you in one town flee to the next for truly I say to you you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the son of man comes and a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master it's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant his master if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul how much more will they malign those of this household so have no fear of them For nothing that is covered will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. And what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Those men, the twelve and then the seventy-two, they had been witnesses to the fact that all that this man had told them, and all the scriptures proclaiming about that suffering servant, they saw all of that come true. They had mocked him. They had ridiculed him. His own family had scorned him for a time. 
And the religious leaders had betrayed him by the hand of one of their own and had turned him over to the Romans who had brutally beaten and then murdered him publicly. And it didn't take a rocket scientist to do this math problem, to add one plus one and come up with, yikes! If they had done this to him, what are they going to do to me? And Jesus knew these men, the fear and the faith that they had. And he knows you as well. He knows your fear. And he knows your faith. Which is why he refocuses their attention and ours off of ourselves and off of themselves to the one who had given them this great and awesome privilege of being called the Son of God. Back in Matthew 10, verses 28 through 33, he said, Don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Just a side note, could this be the answer to the numbering of those fish thing? God numbers the hairs of your head. For some of us, it's easier than others. But he knows all of this. And in saying this, we understand. And know, When we say that he numbers the very hairs of your head, we understand what we're saying is that he is sovereign over every detail in life. So why do we get excited about him telling us how many fish he told to jump into a net? But he goes on, he said, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And now you can get the why of verses 15 through 18 of John chapter 21. Because there, in the midst of those men, stood a man who had seemingly done that very thing. The same man who had jumped into the water, who had jumped back into that boat and hauled that net full of fish to shore. Had he not done this very thing, the thing that he had been warned about, had he not, on three occasions in one night, had these words not come out of his mouth and fearing heart, I don't know that man. And this reality is the reason that we have verses 15 through 18. The conversation that happens between Peter and Jesus after the feast. Jesus must have beckoned Peter to walk with him and John to follow at a distance. For we're told when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? So after feeding these tired, hungry men, Jesus then turns his attention to one of them. One that was carrying a burden in his heart that none of the others were. A burden that had to be addressed. A burden that only he could release Peter of. What was it that Jesus was pointing to? What was he referencing when he said, do you love me more than these? 
Was he pointing to the fish? Those that desired to make this section of Scripture a fish story, they claimed that it was. But where in the gospel have we ever been told, admonished, to love fish? We are repeatedly admonished to love the brothers, such as in John 13, 34, and 35, in John 15, 12, and then again in John 15, 17. So if he was pointing to the disciples, which I do believe he was, was he asking Peter if he had greater love for the Lord than they did, or asking him if he loved him, the Lord, more than he loved them? And Peter's reply to Jesus was this. He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. This first round of question and answer is important to understand. Do you love me more than you love these men? Yes, no, yes, you know that I do. Great, feed my lambs. Because love for the brothers is paramount in the life of a Christian. And not just any brothers. Jesus pointing, is pointing at the disciples. Our love is supposed to be uniquely linked with those that we have covenanted with. This was those that Jesus was asking Peter if he loved more than Christ. And people are to be loved. You are to give of yourself. You are to give of your time, of your talents, and of your treasures. But found within this, there is a snare. Because we humans, all too often, we are going to go for the good and neglect the great. Jesus spoke of this on another occasion. We know that the care of the poor is at the heart of God. We'd all agree with that. But just as Jesus had demonstrated to these men that devotion to the poor was right, as he had often given to the poor, cared for them, and even healed them, this care for the poor had to be tempered with a greater devotion to God. And we see this in John chapter 12, when he had scolded Jesus for berating Mary and anointing him. There he said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with me, but you do not always have me. Verse 7 and 8. Caring for the poor is the good and right thing to do. But caring for Jesus, making him the center of your life, that's the best thing to do. In verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Without waiting for a response by Peter concerning the command to feed his sheep, Jesus asked a second time the same question. Only now he doesn't compare the love of Peter that he has for him with those for the brothers. He just says, do you love me? And then verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And then for the third time, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And this time, there is no yes given. There is only the absoluteness of the one that Peter does love. He knows It was never about the love of Peter. It's about the one that he loves. And Peter knew that he knew. 
Peter was absolutely certain concerning who this man was, that he was God. And his heart hadn't changed. He, he hadn't wavered from where it was when the masses abandoned Jesus because he told them that they could not have any part of him if they were not willing to eat his body and drink his blood. Peter watched these people leave and stood there, shocked, confused. And it was then that Jesus asked these men if they desired to abandon him as well because his ministry was countercultural, because it was hard to understand and not pretty. And there Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. John 6, 68 and 69. That we're told that Jesus asked Peter a second and then a third time. Is proof that this line of question was given to address the threefold denial of Christ made by Peter on the night that he was betrayed. Before we can really sum this all up, though, we do really have to address that culturally acceptable and romanticized understanding of this section of Scripture. Because there is a romanticized version and thinking concerning this long walk on the beach that Jesus took with Peter. Much, way too much has been made of the Greek words that are used in these verses for that word love, both by Jesus and for Peter. The word that Jesus used the first two times that he asked Peter if he loved him was agape. And the word that Peter used in replying to Jesus the first two times was phileo. And then the third time that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He used that same word, phileo. And Peter responded with the same word. And the theology and the stories that have been propagated, only starting in the 19th century, mind you, was that Jesus was asking Peter if he loved him with a godly love. And Peter was answering, saying that while he did love Jesus, I could only muster a brotherly kind of love for you. So again, Jesus asked him, and he gets the same answer. So he asked him a third time, only this time he's no longer expecting Peter to love him with a godly love, but only a brotherly love. And they're all good. And this, we are told, is given us so that we can see that Peter was restored, that Jesus forgave him, and that giving God whatever you can give him is good enough for him. He doesn't demand that you love him with your whole heart, mind, body, and soul. Just a brotherly love will do. But the real problem with this theology and this thinking is that it elevates man and it's not even scriptural. Because people, those people that tell you that agape love is described there, that's God's love. That phileo love, that's a love between men. And that the two uses of those two words of these verses, they show that Jesus was either pointing out to Peter that he didn't love him with God's love, or that he was trying to get him to love him that way. But in the end, he settled for whatever he could get. But if God's love is agape, and human love for people is phileo. What do we do with John chapter five, uh, 3, verse 35? And John chapter 5, verse 20. John 3, 35, we're told, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And the word there is agape. And that's how we understand God the Father loving God the Son. 
But then we read John chapter 5, verse 20, and we read this. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he is doing. And the word used there for love is not agape. It's phileo. So does God the Father only love the Son with brotherly love? Is that what we're thinking now? Or what, maybe he was just mad at Jesus at this point. And, and does his love change then? And what are we to do about John chapter 16, verse 27? For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and, and have believed that I came forth from the Father. And the word for love in both of those times in, those verse, in that verse is phileo. So does God the Father only love us with brotherly affection now? Because we only love Jesus with brotherly affection? Is that what we're supposed to make of this all? Or is the point of all of this something more than the use of words that have the same meaning? First of all, God is love. 1 John 4.16 He doesn't just love. He is love. And that all love is of Him. And it's a gift from Him. So any love in any form, phileo, eros, or agape, is all an extension, a part of the love of, that is God. And all that are of the elect of God, they have his love bestowed on them in equal measure. There are no favorites. None are loved more or less. They're all covered with the same blood, purchased at the same price, and have the same Holy Spirit living in them regenerating their hearts and causing them to love God. And we are told that we are all loved with the same love that the Father loves the Son with, John 10, 17. But when the thrust of these verses is focused on those two words being used and not on what this section of Scripture is really about, then humans are elevated and God is dethroned. And once again, I have to point out that it wasn't until after the dumbing down of Christianity that this kind of thinking could grab a foothold within the church. And if that offends you because you think that I've called you dumb, you don't know where our brothers were and just how far we have fallen. And this thinking completely dis disregards the command of God by this God. The one that was asking Peter, do you love me? In Matthew twenty two thirty seven, he says, He said to them, You shall love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the love that we are to love God with. And when we're, this section of Scripture is taken in context, viewed through the commentary given, and the true meaning of it, only then we can, can we understand why Jesus ends this threefold set of questions with verse 18. You think about that. Why would he, why would, if this was all about him being restored, why verse 18? Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you would stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Jesus begins this very odd and hard sentence to Peter by using a formula that he's used many times throughout this gospel. Truly, truly. 
And as we have learned throughout this gospel, that term has the same thrust, the same meaning as when the prophets of old would say, thus saith the Lord. And now this last truly, truly is finally explained for us in verse 19. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And then after saying this, he said to him, follow me. John gives us the meaning of verse 18. But John does not just give us the meaning of verse 18. He gives us commentary on this very strange, truly, truly. He ends this section of scripture with a direct statement made by Jesus to Peter. A statement that is given us to explain and illuminate the meaning behind all the things that have taken place. That fishing expedition, the jumping in the water, the hauling of the net, 153 fish, and the questions asked by Jesus to Peter. John gives us this last statement as the commentary, the explanation and meaning of all of this. Back in Matthew 10, in that section of scripture, the one that begins with Jesus telling these very men that he is sending them out as sheep among wolves, giving them the power to heal the sick, raise the dead, to cast out demons. He ends the commissioning of them by telling them of the ministry that came with the power that they have been given. And he wanted to make sure that they and we do not get this ministry, ministry wrong. Matthew 10, verses 34 to 37. He told them, and he tells us, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. For many, if not most of those that desire to view this walk along the beach by Jesus and Peter is nothing more than Jesus forgiving Peter and accepting whatever he could get from him. They don't like to think that they have been given this same mission and commission. Oh, this is not the Jesus that they serve. He's a Jesus of love. He wants peace on earth. And this is not the mission or commission that I have been given either. But then, this real Jesus, he lays all the cards on the table in Matthew 10, verses 38 and 39. He says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And here, in these verses, is the same message that Jesus just gave to Peter. Follow me. Peter, you may be wondering. You may have doubt about being mine because you, de you uh, denied me before. But you do love me. And you know that I know that you love me. And because I first love you, you will stay the course. This had to be the greatest doubt in his mind. How am I supposed to ever do this? A little girl asked me, aren't you, aren't you one of his? And I said, no, I denied him because of a little girl. Because I love you, you will stay the course. 
and you will proclaim my gospel, and you will be bold where you have failed before, and you will die just as I died. It's not about you following me. And it's not about you following the Lord. It's about the one that you follow. It's all about Christ. And then in verse 40 of Matthew 10, Jesus tells us the how. He reveals to Peter the reason that he will never lose his salvation. He tells them, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Peter, follow me. But not in your strength. Because in your strength, you will deny me three times. But have no fear. It's not about your strength. It's not about you holding on to me. It's all about the one who sent me. It's all about me holding on to you. You are mine. It's never been about you loving me. I love you with an everlasting, eternal, all-encompassing love. And saints, we are supposed to marvel at this love. The same love with which he, this Savior, loves us. We are to marvel at the fact that not one of those that are his will ever fall away because they are safe in his loving arms. We are never to be distraught about the events that surround our life. Remember that the one that numbers the fish in a net, the one that numbers the hairs on your head, that commands those fish to jump into that net, he loves you. And he is sovereign over all and everything that surrounds you. And this is the all-encompassing, all-empowering, and all-fulfilling love that Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, has for you and for me. This is who he is. And this account is given us in order that we can rest in him. We may be like Peter, but he is the God of Peter. Peter stayed the course, guys, to the point that when he came to be crucified, he didn't beg, he didn't squirm, he didn't deny Christ. He asked to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be crucified like a savior. And he didn't do this on his own, in his own power. This is the power of God's love in our life. We are supposed to understand he will hold you fast. He held Peter to the very end. And he's going to hold every one of us to the very end. This is the love of God for you. This 
is what we're supposed to revel in. Let's pray.